We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. Good morning. Juvenile justice, what to do about kids caught up in crime, is a huge issue in this year's General Assembly. After weeks of public hearings and committee discussion, the full House and Senate are close to debating what course Maryland should take. Three weeks ago, House Speaker Adrian Jones urged the House Judiciary Committee to put aside preconceived notions. I brought this bill forward because our juvenile system is clearly falling failing a small set of children who are repeat offenders. They are not monsters or teen villains. They are children. And they are increasingly calling out for our help because they are not getting the services they need. I know this bill is going to disappoint both sides of the debate, and I'm comfortable with that reality. To understand what's at issue and what may come out of the General Assembly's debate over juvenile justice, we turn to Brenda Wintrode. She covers state politics for our news partner, The Baltimore Banner, and she's following this issue intently. Welcome back to the show, Brenda. Hi, Sheila. Thanks for having me. Both the House and Senate are looking at comprehensive bills with lots of elements. Tell me two or three of the most important components. Yes, sure. So generally speaking, this is not a sweeping overhaul of juvenile justice reforms, but it does pull back a little bit on some very recent changes. Um, Lawmakers said they want to focus their efforts on helping young kids who have gotten their hands on a gun and kids that are stealing cars. So they did the following. They expanded the list of crimes that 10 to 12-year-olds can get arrested for to include some nonviolent crimes such as gun possession and auto theft. And another thing they did was that they expanded the possible amount of some of time that someone can be on probation. So the most effective and proven way to keep kids from repeating negative behaviors is to rehabilitate them with services. So this means that uh, they want to get them services, but if a child need, needs more time to actually get access to that service, they want to have the flexibility to expand the time that a child is on probation. That could mean also that the services are not available at the time when the child is ready for them and needs them. So that would be another amount of flexibility they would give the system to make sure that that kid gets services so that the government can ensure they've gotten what they needed. Another thing that I wanted to add to this list that it could be a very significant change is that they're going to change the oversight structure over juvenile services. And What they want to do is create a commission that will look at how the entire system works together. That's the cops, the agency, and the state prosecutors, and the courts, and make sure that they're all coordinating and working very well together, but they're also going to look at ways that they can enhance the data collection that they're already doing. Well, when you talk about services, what What do we mean? What kinds of services? Can you give me an example? There is a large menu of choices from what I understand. Uh, There just may not be an adequate supply in all the areas that are needed right now. So a service can look like therapy. It can look like individual therapy for a child. It can look like perhaps um, drug treatment. It could look like shoplifting abatement. 
perhaps a restorative justice program, a mentoring program, job training, apprenticeship training, maybe somebody needs tutoring. Uh, it, it can look like a number of different things, but it's really an opportunity for somebody with the state to look at what that child may need or may be lacking in their life and to see how government services can best help. You pointed out this, what is under consideration is not a sweeping overhaul of juvenile justice laws in Maryland. But two years ago, the legislature did do a pretty serious revamp of the juvenile justice law. What what did it do then? Right. So they did. They they moved in a direction that more formally that they've been moving in for some time. So let me take you back even a little bit further uh, into 2019 when the government formed a Juvenile Justice Reform Council. And this was really a team of, of A-listers, you know, researchers, legislators from both sides of the aisle. They had state's attorneys. They had public defenders all sit down with the charge of figuring out how do we keep kids out of the system? How do we help kids do the right thing without involving them in the system? More rehabilitation, less incarceration. So this team sat down together. They went out into the communities. They had meetings with county stakeholders, city stakeholders, and they said, you know, what do you guys need? And then they also looked at research and best practices. And what that told them was that kids do better with rehabilitation, not so good with detention. So what they recommended was basically folded into the 2022 reforms. And in short, what that looked like was they created a, a jurisdictional floor. So the youngest somebody could be system arrested was 13. Unless it was a crime of violence, then they could be arrested if they were anywhere, if they were 10, 11, or 12. Okay, so all of those nonviolent felonies, misdemeanors, they were to be diverted, redirected into service programs. And another thing that this system did was it put limits on the amount of time somebody could be in probation so that they could have an end to when they were involved with the system. There would be this clear definitive end. Back then when they were doing this, you could be on probation up until you were 21 years old. So those that's just some of, of what they did, but there was a lot of data behind what they did and a lot of research too. This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast, speaking with Baltimore Banner state politics reporter Brenda Wintrode about the debate in the General Assembly over Maryland's juvenile justice law. So why then are legislators looking at the issue again just two years later? Well, we have to think about what's been going on in the last couple of years, uh, last year, excuse me. Um, So we've had a number of events that have put juvenile justice back in the forefront, but certainly put it back in the news media cycles. We had two horrific mass shootings involving teenagers as suspects and as victims, the Brooklyn Homes shooting and also one out in Salisbury. Uh, We saw an increase in the number of teenagers having guns and getting shot, being victimized by guns. Um, And then there was this uptick in cars getting stolen during the Kia and Hyundai challenge. And uh, we also saw an uptick in some types of crimes. There is not a juvenile crime crisis. People will be surprised to hear me say this. 
Yes, there are, is an uptick in certain types of crime, and there's certainly a problem with guns. But overall, juveniles commit less than 10% of crime overall. So that being said, there were still significant enough issues within that system, the juvenile justice system, where they had to take a hard look at some of the gaps. For example, there was an Anne Arundel County 12-year-old who brought a gun to school. And this child could not have been arrested on a gun possession charge under the law, but they could have received services. I ultimately do not know what happened with this child, but that is a perfect example of where where we're landed, where we've landed and where lawmakers are looking to improve. What do you do with a 10, 11, 12-year-old who has possession of a gun? How do you get that child help? There is not no mechanism currently that mandates a child get help. It is it is currently optional. And so that's part of what they're looking at doing mm-hmm. now. Youth advocates are arguing against many of the proposed changes. In a statement, Maryland Public Defender Natasha Dartigue criticized several elements that are being proposed. Quote, ultimately, the impact of these proposals will be to incarcerate more children, specifically black and brown children, who statistically are catapulted into the juvenile and adult criminal legal systems more than other children, close quote. Brenda, the the staff of the General Assembly tried to analyze the racial equity impact of the proposed legislation. What what did they find? Yes. So what they found was that they don't have a lot of data in the past to help them understand what will happen in the future should this law pass. But the one thing that they knew for sure was that it would continue to disproportionately impact black children in the system. And I'll tell you one statistic from that report. They said that black children account for about 30% of the state's population under 13, but make up 64% of the number of kids from that age group that are processed by juvenile services in in the 2023 budget year. Now, I can also tell you from my own review of juvenile services data that Black children are overrepresented at every level of the process from being arrested to being detained and being uh, sent to a court proceeding and also being committed. Late in that House Judiciary Committee hearing on February 8th, the aunt and cousin of Nicola Strauder, who was 15 in August 2022 when she was shot and killed by a nine-year-old boy, got a few minutes to speak. Donette McRae, the aunt who was also Nicola's guardian, tearfully asked the legislators for mandatory treatment and services for the child who killed her niece. And Nikayla's cousin, Bolonzi Amaru, told the committee his grieving family carries the hopes of other families that have lost sons and daughters to violence. They're really pushing for us to do this because we have done the civilized thing. We have started prevention programs and rehabilitation programs. We're not waiting for anyone. I'm here today asking for your partnership because what has happened, as Brother Kobe talked about, is the power structures have come down on me and my family. And that's the most, the most hurtful portion. Brenda, tell us about Nikayla Strauder's family. 
Sure. So this was a real honor to meet this family. Um, after Nikela died, uh, her family wanted to make something good out of something tragic and horrific. And along their journey, they discovered that officials had the option whether or not to get the nine-year-old boy or children like him help. And they wanted to make it mandatory. They wanted children like him to get services. They wanted him to be assessed by a clinician so that he could get help. They know that a child like this, because of all of their professional um, experience, they know that a child like this is going to need professional help in order to make better choices in the future. And, you know, her uncle told me, it is not a matter of if, but when this child finds himself in the adult correction system without such help and intense help from the state. So uh, if he gets this help, maybe his life can turn out differently. And, that, and that's what they're hoping for kids like him and, and for the state. And, and this is something that, you know, researchers say will improve public safety if kids that have made bad decisions are given the chance to rehabilitate. So that's why they've been working very closely with Senator Jill Carter on a simple bill to do just that. And they're calling it the Nikela Strader Memorial Act. So how does this relate to the juvenile justice bill and why were they there sitting in front of the Judiciary Committee? Well, this family story is very layered. They found out the same day as everyone else did that Nikela's standalone bill that they had worked on last year had been swept up into the larger juvenile bill. No one had called them to tell them. So I think that's what he's saying when he means the power structure is coming down on me and my family. Nobody told them and they took her name off of it. That They protested that in and of itself. But once they learned what the larger bill was about and that more kids could be brought into the system, possibly in a punitive way, they wanted no part of it. So they drove to Annapolis. They signed up to speak. They waited for about five hours and they were one of the last people to speak. And they asked Delegate Clippinger to take... He's the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. Yes, they asked him to take it out, and he did. He proposed an amendment to strike it, uh, and the bill is moving through the Senate as a standalone bill with her name on it, just as they wanted. It's still in the Senate's larger version, though, so I'm going to still be watching for what happens there. We need to take a short break. On the record, I'm speaking about the effort in the legislature to rewrite some of Maryland's juvenile justice law with Brenda Wintrode, who's covering the issue for our news partner, The Baltimore Banner. When we're back, us versus them. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. I'm Al Waller. I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mihaela Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org.
Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. In Annapolis, dozens of speakers had been telling the House Judiciary Committee for hours what was wrong and what was right about proposals to rewrite Maryland's juvenile justice law. When Delegate Karen Simpson, a freshman Democrat from Frederick, noted that youth advocates like Assistant Public Defender Michelle Kim had disagreed with everything prosecutors had said earlier. How do we get you guys to work together for the kids and not have this us and them? So <laughs> that's what we want. That's what we want. Everyone wants kids to succeed. Why, that's why we're here. All of you deeply care about this. We care about this. The problem is when we start talking about the criminal court system, we're <laughs> adversaries. And that's why we want to talk about non-court solutions. The Maryland House of Delegates is about to start debating changes to the law system for juvenile offenders. The Senate may take up its bill soon. We're talking about it with Brenda Wintrode, who covers state politics for our news partner, the Baltimore Banner. Brenda, that exchange was specifically about positions in a legislative hearing, but this idea of us versus them seems to keep cropping up on this issue. It does, and and it's a significant piece of the puzzle here. You know, as I said before, like the juvenile system is more than just the Department of Juvenile Services, but that's what we hear about quite often. It's the police, it's police departments who are often the first point of contact with teenagers, and they're bringing teenagers to juvenile services agency. And that agency plays a major role in the equation, but so do the prosecutors in the courts on the back end. So it's been pretty clear through this process that the agencies haven't been communicating very well. And I don't know exactly what that looks like on the ground, but other than to say that I've heard lawmakers and some of the agency heads themselves say, you know, that they're they're not really working well together and they are wanting to move in that direction. I've also heard them say that. So we've gotten some glimpses of it, including at a Baltimore town hall in December, um, on public safety, you know, there was a back and forth between State's Attorney Bates's staff member, Kate Rosenblatt, and Secretary of Juvenile Services, Vincent Giraldi. And they they were just kind of publicly discrediting each other's data. And there was kind of a, a couple rough exchanges um, between the two of them. So these are this is part of the problem. And, and that commission that I spoke about earlier, that is uh, one of the oversight measures is also tasked with trying to figure out how to get these agencies working better together and to look for opportunities for them to be collaborative. When Michelle Kim, who is supervising attorney in the juvenile division of the Maryland Office of Public Defender, when she told Delegate Simpson that she'd like to see non-court solutions, what, what would that look like? So what Attorney Kim is talking about here is services. Um, that that word we keep hearing, right? That it's just ever present throughout this conversation. And there are many different types. You know, it could look like mentoring. It could look like somebody going to a program where they get tutoring or extra help in school, or they get some type of an individualized plan where where they are looking toward achieving their own goals in life, maybe it looks like somebody that perhaps did some graffiti on the side of a store or something is responsible for cleaning it up and making amends with the store owner, building owner. There are just so many different options that I've heard of, some really creative solutions that look to correct somebody's behavior, 
hold them accountable, which is also another big word that we're hearing here. This is all about accountability without necessarily sending them into a situation where they're in front of a judge or faced with probation or an ankle monitor or some other punitive measure. That's state politics reporter Brenda Wintrode of the Baltimore Banner. On the record, I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about proposals to roll back some changes in juvenile justice law that were enacted two years ago. Brenda, Governor Moore has also included some elements in his proposed state budget that could affect kids. Talk about the Thrive Academy. The Thrive Academy is for a very particular group of kids. This is uh, an innovative program. It is new to the state, and it is a gun violence reduction strategy. It is for the most at-risk kids. This is a small group of kids. I believe they started out with 25 in Baltimore City and Baltimore County, and the last I heard, they were up to 57 kids. This is a focused approach to wrapping these kids with supports in their own community. And what that may look like is job training, apprenticeship programs. It may look like meeting with somebody on a regular basis who has been exactly where they are. And and they call these people credible messengers, somebody that has understood their journey and can help them find a new path. Now, this is more than that. It is also, it also could include some pretty extraordinary measures to keep a child that is at high risk for either being a victim or victimizing somebody with with gun violence. So it could mean that they help this person's family move if they are in trouble and they need to be relocated to be safe. It could look like um, getting somebody a job or uh, possibly stipends. I believe stipends are involved too. Um, and other incentive programs to develop somebody's attributes rather than punishing punishing them for their weaknesses. Moore has also created a governor's office for children, something like it used to exist as far back as the Schaefer administration. And during the Hogan administration, that was part of the governor's office of crime prevention, youth and victim services. So Is this just a name change or is this something that could have an impact? So it is something that could have an impact because when we're talking about services, um, there are a lot of state agencies responsible for providing services so that, you know, when we think of like food insecurity, that's the Department of um, Human Services, or perhaps there are mental health issues involved and that would fall under the Department of Health. So this governor's office for children would specifically focus on the group of children most at need for these types of services and make sure these agencies are talking to each other because a kid may have some connection with the Department of Health and individually a connection with the Department of Juvenile Services, but they are in silos. So this office is going to connect and collaborate and make those make those um, different state agencies collaborate on the services provided for that child. Um, and yes, you're correct. It used to be separate. And I believe Governor Hogan joined them together. Uh, and then Governor Moore is essentially separating that that back out because it the other half of that, what we're separating out there is an agency that is responsible for 
services to victims and helping law enforcement agencies serve those victims in their communities. So this is separate. He wanted to separate out the um, the victims of, of gun violence from children that may not be system involved yet, may be system involved, but just be in a situation in their lives where they need their basic needs met. And this office is going to help get that coordinated, not as part of a juvenile justice prevention measure. Very often, important legislation, uh, complicated legislation, goes down to the very last days of the legislature session, which would be in April, early April. Um, Do you see this taking that long to work out? Well, here's where we are right now. Um, Last week, the bill got passed out of the House Judiciary Committee with some amendments. And the Senate is just one step behind them. So we could see these bills on the floor as early as this week. And, you know, we're not quite into March yet. So there's a lot of time between now and then. Uh, That being said, I also think they're going to have a lot to hammer out. You know, this this bill could change. uh, Amendments could be introduced on the floor. And there's a, a lot of debate. There's a lot of push and pull on what accountability looks like, depending on who you ask. And all of these stakeholders have a different version of that. So more to be determined. I don't know that it's going to go down the wa- down to the wire just yet. Brenda, thanks for walking us through it. Thanks for having me. Brenda Wintrode, who covers state politics for our news partner, The Baltimore Banner, is following the General Assembly's debate over Maryland's juvenile justice laws. At the On the Record page at WYPR.org, we have links to some of her reporting. I'm Sheila Cass. Glad you're with us on the record. Join us again tomorrow.